The Seven Cities podcast is dedicated to interviewing artists in the Chicagoland area, their supporters and developers. Join us on our journey as we look at all aspects of the seven arts. Hi, I'm Joanna Moffitt, and I'm Artistic Director of Core Productions. Welcome to the Seven Cities Podcast. This is our guest, Olivia Lilly, today. She is Artistic Director of Prob Theater. Woo-woo! So nice <laughs> to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Um, it was my uh, partner in crime, Emily Cox's idea to bring you on first, because you have really been essential in developing new works in the Chicagoland area. And that's something that really interests us as a team. And I'm just so excited to have you. It's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yay. Yes. (laughs) Um, And hopefully Emily will be able to join us, but you know, if not, it's, it's okay. This is COVID, right? (laughs) Um. So how was your week? Tell me a little bit about your a day in the life of Olivia. Oh my. Well, it's this uh this February has been particularly packed. I've been teaching three classes. Um I teach at Chicago Dramatists. Um I teach I tend to teach um uh collaboratively making like like uh, classes devised classes i'm teaching a class called writing and performance for the internet i'm also teaching at the phoenix theater in indianapolis where i'm uh also yes devised theater um and then also i work at a uh, restaurant in logan square where essentially we're doing a lot of takeout they've uh, expanded their service from uh uh, just evening to breakfast and lunch. So it's been really interesting kind of being in on the ground floor as they're trying to like re uh, imagine their business because of COVID. Um, yeah. And then also uh, we had a big uh, prop, like uh, we had a big prop moment with props 40th birthday on February 13th. That um, so we just launched prop theater merchandise and like t-shirts and mugs and stuff designed to, designed by Nina Dan. Angier, who's one of our um, in-house artists, um, and we raised some money for our forty thousand dollar campaign, and we had a big virtual party. Um, so those are some of the things I've been up to. Um, we also on Friday are co-producing a virtual staged reading with Perceptions Theater Company um, of our commission in progress, Underdrown, which is by uh, Chicago playwright Derek McFadder. And it's part of a trilogy called the Night Queen Trilogy, which was recently um, awarded a creative capital grant for 2020. So we're really excited about having that project finally touch the public in some way after months and months of work on it um, in-house. Uh, so those are, yeah, that's what I've been up to. <laughs> it's, it's a small week for you, right? <laughs> it's easy going. Oh, yeah. I'm also um, getting my MFA in screenwriting at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. So I've been doing all of the writing and paper writing that I needed to do for, for that. It's my first semester. So, you know. Wow. Um, what? Okay. So I want to ask you a lot of questions about that because I really love writing myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to... I want to kind of ask some general questions just to kind of dive in with you and see what you feel like your biggest, um, your biggest joys have been in the past and maybe like some of your 
not so great moments. I feel like those are really great uh, moments to learn, you know? So uh, my first question for you, if you don't mind, (laughs) my first question for you is, what is the project you're most proud of? Oh, man. I know, it's Um, a tough one. (laughs) That is a really big question. Well, so um, I am working on, uh, I'm in the later stages of development on a, my, my, which will, what will hopefully be my debut feature film as a writer director. Um, it's called the snow people. And last year it was one of the selective projects for full spectrum feature and the city of Chicago's inaugural producers lab. Um, and so myself and my producer, Harley Foos, uh, um, did this lab or we did this lab over the course of nine months, which was a deep dive into, all aspects of indie film producing. And I also got a lot of, um, of development work done on my script itself. And essentially from that process, I really felt so welcomed into the world of film. And I felt so in my element that I applied for grad school and got in <laughs> for screenwriting. Um, yeah. I missed something so interesting. I've been learning a lot recently um, through Elijah's help, actually. <laughs> about about storyboarding and developing film and shots and you know all the things that I never ever thought that I would be interested in yeah (laughs) now I'm like oh I love this (laughs) I had no idea yeah it's been been an interesting time for for theater because we haven't been able to make live theater so at least personally like I got one of one of my COVID gigs was I got hired by the University of Evansville to write a play for Zoom but with their students and so me and my uh, director, Cameron Knight, and that team uh, created a horror play for Zoom. So it was almost like a very strange amalgamation between film, film like screenwriting and stage writing. Um, yeah. And it's been great to see all kinds of experiments living in that hybrid kind of universe between the two. Yeah, I find those projects really fascinating. I feel like that's what um, our current project, we're working on Pearl Fishers. Mm-hmm. The director, George Cole, decided to take the the opera and make it for Zoom instead of, you know, kind of what I'd been doing in in our in our previous productions was sort of finding a balance between theater and and the the film format, like you said. And now he's really like embracing the culture of Zoom and, and it's so cool. I love, I love that. That's great. Oh, is there somewhere we can watch that by chance? Oh, Mandate, uh, they, University of Evansville was supposed to stream it, but they have not yet. So I will let you know as soon as I know. <laughs> um, we did do a one night only like production performance, which we filmed and it did turn out great. But um, yeah, I don't know when you'll be able to see it. <laughs> Okay, no problem. I am excited for that. I'm sure it'll be on your website, right? Um, we'll see. Universities are interesting. <laughs> There's more red tape than if you was working at a company independently. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the first project you started gaining notoriety with, which in my in my research or in Emily's research, probably, um, was the pop magic productions. Tell me about, tell me about how that worked and and what you learned from that. Yeah. So, um, 
Well, I've had a couple of companies in Chicago, the first one being the Runaways Lab Theater, which was my devising ensemble, which is now, um, it still exists. I'm on the advisory board of it. Um, but then after Runaways, I started um, Pop Magic Productions with um, a big patron of the arts who lives in Paris named Gaetan Bonhomme. And essentially, he wanted to invest in me as an artist. So I started Pop Magic, which was um, a small uh, like lab kind of company that's all about trying to figure out how theater can fit into the cultural and entertainment and nightlife sphere at large. Yeah. And so we did a lot. We did a couple of um, one hour long devised plays. We did a Dorian Gray that was set in like the queer underground like scene that we uh, performed at a children's theater company, like like their office. <laughs> And gave everyone like free like like shots of gin and and you walk entered a giant into a giant like glowing like green room with, with like Tori Amos blasting. Um cool. so that, that was great. That sold out. And then the next thing we did was um an hour-long dance musical version of the life of Eleanor Duza called In Sarah Shadow. And it was actually a co-production with Prop Theater, and that's how I ended up getting offered artistic director at Prop is that I, I basically did that show. They really liked working with me. And then when I went to pitch them the next show, they um, offered me the job and I jumped at it. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like from the experience of going to the, the 40th anniversary party, they really did the right thing by hiring you. <laughs> you have the Thank right you. energy and vision for a company like Prop Theater, I feel like. Um, yeah, I mean, when I got there, it was like, so I, I became friends with the people who ran the company in 2015 and, and did their festival, uh, like Rhino Fest for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, and something that was really awesome is that they had their own like warehouse. They essentially had two spaces that were theirs and they already had some grant funding. So when someone was like the artistic director of this company, I was like, wow, I've never owned my own theater <laughs> building before. I don't know what that's like. Wow. What did that experience teach you, do you feel like? Um, that it's better not to own a building. <laughs> um, it's but, very expensive, isn't it? Yes. And there was a lot of, uh, oftentimes our conversations were about productions and venue. And some of the times those conversations were at odds. Oh, um, it was really wonderful for the time we had it to like have this. And I only got to experience the last couple of years of it. Everyone else who was working there got to be there and enjoy it since 20, 2005 when they purchased the building. Okay. Um, but it wasn't, it was a beautiful like meeting area for like, you would, you would sit in the lobby and you'd run into artists of all different, like, like stripes, all Chicago, like local people. And you'd end up having such surprise conversations um, and there was always free tea and coffee. Um, and so now that we've sold the building and we're moving on, we're kind of thinking about how can any kind prop does anything, recreate that environment, um, even though it's not, we might not be in our own building. Yeah, that was something that really struck me at the party was that there was this sense of camaraderie, even with me, who was like new to the prop experience to really be part of, of the group they really wanted to know what what it was about me that made me tick and like how how we could collaborate or interact and 
it was it was really cool. <laughs> was totally, great. yeah. Prop has always been a place that has valued its artists, but also the community in which the artists and the audience members can be together and intermingle and just be on an even an even playing field. Yeah, absolutely. Grounds. Yeah, so important. Um, without our communities, I feel like we have nothing as <laughs> as companies. There's really nothing you know more important to me as a producer and director to, than to collaborate with the community itself. That's amazing. I love that. Absolutely. Um, so going back to your the works, you're talking a lot about these works that you've developed. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what it is you look for in a new work that you want to develop? What catches your eye and makes you excited about, about it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say a very distinct point of view, even if it's a complicated one, that really like grabs me um, in the things I scout. Um, I would say like a sort of adventurous idea of, of style and, and multidisciplinary, you know, um, approaches is also something that, that catches my eye. I think also the organization, the organizational capacity of an artist and how, so how organized someone comes off is also as someone who works in non-equity storefront, I, I really like have to. I need to work with only artists who are very like good at self man managing themselves and communication. Right. And that's probably, um, because you've done a lot of development yourself. You have a, a plan, right. You have a, a set plan in place for development, right. Your own kind, sort of long commission model. Yes. But, but when I'm producing for someone else, I generally I'm, I'm trying to figure out how they like to work and then building a model that will suit that. Oh, Oh, that's so cool. You know, so it's uh, <laughs> like, for example, on Faust, which is a project yeah. that I am the director on uh-huh. to Nuja, the playwright and I, um, she assisted me as a drama. She was my dramaturg on another project that was built in that same manner. So okay. I essentially trained, like they like showed her the whole model before then we did it. But that mm-hmm. we knew that was going to happen because I was going to be the director on that project. Whereas with Underdrown and with Derek and Michael, who are working on that, it's more about how do they want to work? And then how do I build a structure to suit that? Yeah. So I kind of, I'd say I like have two brains, which is one is the artist brain, which I'm a writer director and I usually do devised work, whether it's film or theater, that is my artist brain. And then there's my producer brain, which is all about centering the people and centering the, uh, the lead artists in in a way there where I'm not making assumptions about how they want to work. It's all about like, how do we set up what you need? How do we build in checkpoints? along the process. So we're continually refining the next steps according to the needs. Um, and then how are we setting up the part the, the, the particular partnerships we need in order to really pull off this project Wow! and get the, get the audience. Cause something you really need to think about when you're like producing for someone else is like, how do you get the audience that that project deserves? Like how can you find them? And like, how do you build that in an ethical way? So you're not exploiting anyone to get to them. You know, yeah. how are, how is it that prop can be a champion of this artist, not someone, not prop owning their work and like prop yeah. of it, <laughs> that makes sense. How did you develop that sort of mentality around 
around the audience because I yeah. feel like that's so rare, actually. <laughs> well, so two things. I would say um, coming to prop uh, and doing work there, I had my own built-in audience from Runaways and Pop Magic stuff. And so sure. they would come, but prop is has slightly has like a different prop is different than just me. It, it's 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 got it's 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 ethics are not and not ethics, but it's aesthetics are just in a, a different world than mine as a, just an individual. And so how do we, we, we had an opportunity to really rebuild the audience or expand upon it. Um, and we brought in Tara Bronham, who's a Chicago director of new work and a marketing person and a producer. And she really kind of instilled in me that if you don't think about audience, then your default audience is just white upper, like, like, uh, like culture loving, like sure. NPR people. <laughs> so in, in, in order to like actually invite people in, we have to be intentional about how. Um, and so that's something that we think about for every show, but are also constantly grappling with because we need to figure out like, how do we really get them to come out? You know? Yeah. Or how do we bring them, how do we bring the show to them too? So we're excited to be itinerant because it will give us flexibility in terms of that. And is that something that you have, I mean, obviously in these other iterations before prop where you had one sedentary space, there, there was a way to explore that. How did you, how did you find that? How did you work with the audience in, in other Production. Yeah. So I did a, a I did another version of Faust. Actually, it was called Faust: Save Me or I'll Die. And it the whole idea with that Faust was that it performed and rehearsed in this, this different apartment around the city of Chicago every night of its run and right. and develop it. And before that, I had run a DIY house called the Parlor, and I had a built-in audience from that. So I crowdsourced the internet for all of these apartments that would then house each day of this project. Yeah. And remarkably, no one forgot. Everybody showed up. Sometimes they feed us. And then also when for all the performances, the hosts were in charge of how many people were allowed in their house. And we marketed to all of their friends and we completely sold out the run of the entire show. That is incredible. You know, and that was, that was, that was the first time where like I had set it up so that we really had to trust our audience to show up or the thing would fall apart. And Chicago magic proved that that is something that Chicago audiences are willing to do. Um, and that, and it was in that moment that I was like, wow, I love Chicago. This is like the greatest city in the world. <laughs> All right. Cause you moved here from New York, right? Yeah. Kind of. So I went to school at Carnegie Mellon for directing and my okay. mom lived in Manhattan um, she worked at Victoria's Secret in the technical design department when I was at school. So I spent all of my breaks from school in New York interning okay. and just trying to get a sense of the scene there. But I ultimately decided to move to Chicago because I wanted some independence. I would have had to live with my mom in New York. And also, I didn't feel like the New York like ladder climbing was like something that I would like a system that I would thrive in. So... I chose Chicago because I thought it would be more financially accessible to like make your own work. I think you're right. <laughs> That's also why I chose Chicago. <laughs> yes, I was right. I think I love that I love that. Um, oh, I had a, a thought of a question while you were. Oh, right. Okay. 
Uh, you mentioned your mom and and going to school for directing. What do you think in your past led you to become a producer, director, writer? I mean, well, when I was a kid, I was an only child. Yeah. And I grew up mostly with my grandparents and my mom went to work. And so I really learned how to entertain myself. Um, I remember something I distinctly did was I set up all my Barbies as the audience members on the staircase and then I would put shows on for them. So even then as like a three, four year old, I was like very aware of the audience. Another funny thing that I did was I would strip all my Barbies so that they were all naked because I didn't want some to have clothes and some to not have clothes. So not only was my audience like made up of lots of people, but I made sure that they were all equal. <laughs> it's very egalitarian of you. I love it. <laughs> I'm naked for some reason. Um, yeah, you know, if they're comfortable, I'm comfortable. It's fine. <laughs> it was, I'd say um, I started, I didn't realize that I wanted to be a writer director until I was about 12. And I read The Phantom of the Opera, the book. Uh-huh. And I found out there was a musical and I didn't like the musical. I didn't think it did justice to the book. So I wrote my own musical. Is is that in existence somewhere? It is, but you're never gonna I know. It's I like the story of it, but I wrote it from ages thirteen to fifteen. I wrote the I wrote the, the music, I wrote the orchestral score, I wrote the script, I wrote the book, the lyrics. And it was a movie. It was a movie musical. Sure. <laughs> Sure. Um, but that definitely uh, sealed the deal. I was hooked. I knew I wanted to be uh, a writer and director from that, from age like 12, 13. Yeah. That said, I was really like shy and timid and scared. And so everyone in my life was like, oh, well, you know how to write music. So you're going to write. So you're going to study music composition because no one, not very many people know how to do that. And that will separate you. So <laughs> I wrote very much like secretly and then went to Interlock and Arts Academy for music composition huh. um, and was really on that music composition path for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But when I got to Carnegie Mellon, first as a music composition major, I was like, "This, I hate this. This is so boring. I'm not interested <laughs> in music for music's sakes. I'm only interested in music telling a story. Yeah. And I, I think I assistant directed, uh, or no, assistant music directed in the in the drama school, and I really liked what the director was doing. And I essentially mm -hmm. ended up having an epiphany that I was a director, and I applied while I was at CMU, like not doing anything. I applied to the directing program, and luckily I got it. <laughs> That's incredible. So wow. it took me a while to gain the confidence. It took me like I would say four or five years to gain the confidence to like finally do it <laughs> <laughs> I can appreciate that I I feel I feel uh, a kinship to you in that way where I was studying music at IU and I I really just came to hate it <laughs> oh, wow. that's an awesome music school <laughs> yes it is it's an incredible school and I will never I never ever would would uh you know go back and change what my experience was mm -hmm. but uh, I feel like I really learned a lot in the in the opera production, like in the side of it. The first year I was at in Bloomington, I worked for the opera. I worked as a stagehand. I worked as I worked building sets, and then um, I got hired as an assistant stage manager. And then as assistant stage director, and I was like, wow, I really love this. Like opera production is incredible. 
And then I went on to study and I was bored. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's a, something that was really distinct that I remember happening when I was a freshman music composition major is that as I was phasing myself out of music composition, my composer friends would one asked me to write the libretto for an opera. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it and he was like, damn, Olivia, like you're pretty good at music, but like you're really good at this. <laughs> and I, was like, no. I know who to ask for my next libretto from. <laughs> It was like it. It was really beautiful to get to like do that because it was it was night and day how much more excited I was to like figure out the story and like how everything unfolded um, from just sitting in front of a blank piece of paper and try and and figuring out music. It was just like okay, I, this is clear to me. <laughs> That, that's amazing. I feel like I feel the same way about producing, you know, sometimes where I, I get up in the morning and I'm like, okay, I see the next, the next 10 steps that I have to take. Whereas if I'm studying a role or I'm working on something out, you know, something else that just feels like very, very musician-y, that's not yeah. a word. but you know what I mean? It just, it feels, uh, it feels really, mm, it feels heavy to me. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Like, like occasionally people while I was in the drama school would ask me to write music and I'd always drop out. <laughs> and I'd be like, nah, I don't want to do it. <laughs> Something else I'd say I learned producing because yeah. and in drama school, my the my uh, the head of directing, head of undergraduate directing, Jed Harris was very good at making us all understand that no one wants a 23-year-old director. So we were going to have to make our own work. And we were going to have to just figure out how to have the skill of making things happen because otherwise we were not going to have careers. Right. And I feel like that a lot of opera singers would benefit from that experience. (laughs) I certainly would have uh, at IU. (laughs) Yeah, I assisted on an opera at, at CMU and it was super interesting because the opera singers were very afraid of like making their own choices. They like wanted the director to tell them what to do and that director like knew that that's what they wanted so he would fuck with them so hard. <laughs> oh, I don't know if you remember any examples you can tell me. <laughs> so, okay, so also good context. My, uh, the, the, this director that I'm talking about, he also... His life's like work was directing Thomas the Tank Engine. Oh my god! You know, so he he was the Thomas the Tank Engine director, um, and he would do this thing where he would be like, "All right, the twenty of you come up with this sequence, and you have twenty minutes, and you can't ask Olivia for help." And then he would leave the room, and then they would all be like, "Olivia, tell us what to do," and I'd be like, "Nope, I can't." So he would essentially like lock a bunch of opera singers in the room to come up with like a visual sequence together where they all have to do something. Oh my gosh. And I felt like it wasn't until I got my, uh, my minor in acting that I really like understood why I didn't like that so much, (laughs) you know, why I was like, I don't understand why, why I have to wait and, and listen to this person. Like, what does this mean? (laughs) You know? Mm Oh my gosh. Oh, I love that. That sounds like a blast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say like directing is like being a composer, but with more things than notes and yeah, 
and and like yeah i just so i i feel like i still use my composition skills quote unquote but it's just in a different a different way uh that's amazing well um speaking of your composition <laughs> uh emily had a question for you which i thought was brilliant you've written both plays and musicals what for you is the huge difference is it really it's it's that uh, dislike yeah, yeah. music or or how does that work tell me about I would it. say the biggest difference between musicals and plays is that in musicals you always have to find the moment in which words are not enough in every mm-hmm. scene and that's when the song starts but then I love to when I'm so I've done a devised musical before and I taught a, like a bunch of really dope actor songwriters mm-hmm. the, the, the principles of like musical theater writing and one of my favorite ones is make make sure there's a reason for the second verse to happen like you something has to either happen on stage or happen with that person that that offers some change that moves us forward and then on the bridge someone should have like a realization about something oh i love that that's like uh that's like cavatina cavoletta structure oh yeah that's yeah. awesome so, I mean, this is super nerdy. I apologize in advance. What? We're doing <laughs> opera. That's fine. Nerds. I used to um, love Maria Callas. Like, I, I, my live journal picture was Maria Callas. Like, oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> She's a, I mean, I never, I, I never cared about her singing one way or the other, but I found her singing so dramatic and like, and oh, her yes. acting was so incredible. Like, I, yeah, yes, I will always choose a, an actor over a voice. <laughs> yeah. Natalie to say, oh my gosh, she's my queen. <laughs> I saw her in Lucia at the Met. <laughs> oh, did you? I would have been crying from the beginning, probably. <laughs> I was in like standing room, and I was like, "How do I know everything that's happening on stage right now?" Oh, oh, Natalie just says a really good actor. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> not in English, but I understand everything. <laughs> I, I continually return to her Ophelia as an example of of just the the power of passion, and and. There's there's a couple of versions of her singing it, it on YouTube. But my favorite is she's just like she's reading this this book of poetry and she starts ripping the pages out and like throwing them everywhere. And then and then she collects them and it turns into the baby that she lost. And it's just like the most heartbreaking, gorgeous moment ever. Oh yes. Someday I'll be that level of actor. <laughs> I watch that for sure. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so back to my questions. <laughs> um, what are you most looking forward to right now? It doesn't have to be uh, show related if you don't, if, if there's something like your cup of tea, for example. Oh my gosh. Um, what am I most looking forward to right now? Um, so something that I've been doing to like kind of self-care is I bought myself a really nice bathing suit and I also bought myself prescription sunglasses and I am planning on going to the beach unless Lori Lightfoot forbids it again. Um, but I can't wait for the summer cause I'm going to go to the beach in yeah. that look really fucking cute and it's going <laughs> to 
Yes, I'm here to support that. If you need a hat, let me know, okay? <gasps> yes. Um, that's amazing. So it, are you like more of a beach person than a mountains person? Yeah, definitely. Okay. I was I was born in Los Angeles. I've never lived there as an adult, but I was born there. And I don't think I can take the beach out of me. What's something that someone would be surprised to learn about you? Um... Probably that I grew up with my grandparents. I was raised by old people. <laughs> so I watched like a lot of old movies and yeah. I didn't know what classic rock was very <laughs> at all. And I knew all the words to sound of music. Yeah. Um, and I love Nat King Cole. Oh my gosh. Wait, do people not love Nat King Cole? I feel like, I mean, at least people of like around my peer ages, they, everyone loves like Led Zeppelin and like Black Sabbath and like... <laughs> Just different, like classic rock with their parents, like with new. But my mom was also weird and like never listened to any of that. <laughs> I don't think that's weird. I mean, so I grew up in a predominantly uh, Latinx neighborhood, and I went to school in a predominantly Black neighborhood, mm-hmm. and I didn't know anything about Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath until I went to high school. <laughs> that makes me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh wait. Not everyone listens to these like uh, Spanish ballads at the at the loudest decibel you can possibly listen to them. Aww, okay, cool. yeah. <laughs> what are you not good at? Um, uh, Google Drive. Google Drive. <laughs> I'm not very good at like the Google Suite programs, and it's kind of embarrassing because I am a producer, but I much prefer email yeah. or meeting communication or text communication even. I'd much prefer like more personalized forms of communication than the Google drive. If I ever get assistance for things, I'm always like, you're working the Google drive. (laughs) That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I have much improved Tara. My like marketing and producer residence at prop has, has told me that I have significantly improved, but I still like, look at the Google drive or try and find something in my email. And I'm like, God, can you send that again? <laughs> I am organized, but like not in that, that I don't have that brain. That's okay. That's not why people hire you, right? <laughs> no. How are you changing the world? Shit. Um, well, this is one of the, something I'm doing right now is I'm in the theater producers of color uh, inaugural commercial producing class. Um, so me and 24 other producers of color are learning from Broadway producers for 10 weeks. And we are all meeting, meeting and organizing, trying to figure out like how we can basically change the world with this information or like change Broadway or change the theater industry with this information that we're learning. So I'm on a quest to really understand every facet of like the theater industry in America so I can better like learn to be, to model alternative ways of being within it. I love that. You know, and figure out ways where we can champion each other and, and, um, and break down barriers of access and clout and shit like that so that people have much of a fairer chance of getting their work seen or done or seen by the people that need yeah you know so I'm, I'm on a quest to like understand the industry as much as I possibly can I also like love listening to 
film uh, like business podcasts so I can understand the film industry because I think they go hand in hand. I'm personally really trying to create a career for myself that's both dual film and theater. Um, so I'm really just like, I'm trying to educate myself on the, on the ins and outs of the business sides of the industry while also studying screenwriting. That's incredible. I, I feel like that's so important. I mean, but that makes sense. That's sort of been your approach all along. <laughs> yeah, I, right? think, I think as a, as a, I think being a, being an artist makes me a better producer because I understand what everyone's going through in the process on mm-hmm. either side, you know, and also having been with Runaways and then Pop Magic, building my own audience, super grassroots style. So like I would work my box office all the time as a way to get to know who was coming to my theater. Oh, that's genius. You know, also I didn't want to pay anyone to do it, but <laughs> <laughs> because I was like, oh, what if, so-? you know, there's a million things, but it was a, it was a essential experience. I think to my, at my personal like education was like, working that box office and meeting everybody who like saw my show and kind of watching the audience and how they experienced it. Um, And I would say like in that pre-prop period, I've produced about 12 shows. Wow. So there was a lot. Yeah. And those were all, I mean, most of the time they were in different found spaces. I've, I rented the Chopin theater once. Um, But yeah, I, I, and then with Faust, I went to everybody's house and like took everyone's coat and like gave the intro speech that set up the whole concept. Um, So the hospitality aspect has also been really key to everything I do. Emily said that, that that was a key element for you working in the hospitality industry, bringing that to, that's really interesting because it sounds like you and I have a lot in common. I also worked in the, in the food industry for 20 years. Um, so tell me more about that. If you want to share more about uh, how the the influence of the hospitality industry. So in 2015, I had the privilege of working for Lost Lake, which is a tiki bar in Logan Square. Love Lost Lake. (laughs) And Shelby um, were the co-owners and they are, they still are. Um, Shelby was like a marketing genius. And Paul is like a cocktail, like, like craftsman. And Mm -hmm. For that first like year of their operation, I got to overhear them arguing about all of their day to day like thoughts and decisions. Yeah. And Shelby was so good at presenting everything visually, um, and it was really awesome like watching them figure out the style and watching them come up with the standards of service and how it all worked, you know, as an experience. Yeah. Um, and after that, I like could never see, I couldn't see restaurants as just restaurants. Like they were all crafted artistic experiences from then on. Um, so then uh, I've worked at a couple other places like Forbidden Roots, which is a brewery, um, brewery like like uh, dinner spot. And then The Loyalist in West Loop, which was um, and is a, a, a sort of a upper upscale dive bar. <laughs> Underneath Smith, which is a Michelin star like destination restaurant, and they have the same owners. Um, so that had a totally different vibe, but it was super interesting watching them kind of navigate owning two separate brands that interacted and uh, watching the ways in which our service was being sculpted versus the service upstairs, which was what much more like 
like much more like a like um detailed and had like way way more procedures than us at the car at the bar below yeah uh, and so that was a really nice contrasting experience to logan square in lost lake because Lo- logan square is much more like casual and atmosphere and the and west loop is very like i was on ada street so it's also like off of restaurant row so it's like a lot of the more rich people would go there because they didn't mm. want to be seen on restaurant <laughs> you know um and also, like, people like the guy who's the executive producer of, like, Chicago Fire would come into, like, the Loyalist all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to, like, seat him and, like, kind of just make sure he was comfortable. And, you know, I never was, like, I'm a director or anything. But, like, I just wanted to make sure that when, if I did ever interact with him again, he would recognize me from such a good experience. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I feel like that's so important. Yeah. Continue. And then, uh, so now after um, after Loyalist, I've been working at Supercana International in Logan Square for the last year. And that's a really great place because it's like, um, so one of the chefs used to, like he, he was uh, one of, in the original team of Lula Cafe. And mm-hmm. so one of his mentors is Jason Hummel, who runs Lula Cafe. And so Lula, uh, like Jason is a part owner of Supercana. Mm-hmm. And one of the other chefs at Supercana is the biscuit man at Long Room. So he owns the like the food at Long Room, if you've ever been there. You know I, I mean? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you've eaten and you've eaten Zishan's food. That's yeah. so um and that was the first place I ever worked where the staff was a majority people of color and everyone was like a really cute hipster. <laughs> <laughs> And then also, like, it was a place that was the food was about not just being Indian, but being like Indian, like, uh, with mixes of other cultures inside of it. So they had like a butter chicken calzone, you know, yeah. so it, was like a, it was a really like multicultural, like, I mean, it is, it still exists. Yeah. Um, but then once COVID happened and shut down the restaurant, like, mm-hmm. they were still getting, like trying to get us money anyway, and giving us free food and just keeping us like in the loop while they try to figure things out. And then when they were able to reopen in July, they offered all like a bunch of us the opportunity to come back to work. And they've just done a fantastic job, like working with us um, to keep the restaurant going and and afloat. And they've been starting to like open up the, they've been renting it out to different other people who need kitchens and stuff. And they've had, they've, they've gotten their, their cooks are doing different pop-ups you know, so they're like encouraging their people to have their own businesses. So <laughs> it's really like, it's very, very um, inspiring to see all the ways in which that, that restaurant is pivoting to like figure out how to survive. It sounds like they're really being innovative and, and how, I mean, how wonderful that you get to sort of experience that firsthand. Yes. And also, um, I'm working on a secret project with one of the chefs. Which I can't tell you about it yet. But it is theatrical and it does involve food. So okay. <laughs> well, let me turn over now. If you ever if you ever want to chat about um about doing immersive experience in theater it, in restaurants, that is how course started. So I'd be happy to chat with you about that. Oh yes, I definitely do. Okay. <laughs> Not right now, but off the air. <laughs> I don't want to reveal any of your secrets. No, don't. So I feel like we just spent the last 45 minutes talking about this, but I have one last question for you, which is, what do you do when you face a problem you've never had to solve before? 
um, take a breath and try not to try to find out all of the information so I can make the most informed decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, try and move with compassion and empathy. Mm. Um, take another breath, take a lot of breaths, try not to act out of urgency. I probably said that, but, (laughs) um, and then having like, having um, a sense of understanding for myself, no matter what ends up happening, I'll have tried to do my best (laughs) to solve it. I mean, that's all you really can do, right? Yeah. And also when I get criticism for my actions to listen and take a breath and process and adjust. Wow. Is that easy for you? Um, I mean, it's become a lot easier than it was. I would say I had a, I had some like, uh, tricky situations in like 2018 with a project that was like too big a scale Mm -hmm. for how much money we had. Mm -hmm. And I ended up having to fire someone. Oh no. Um, and then I had to deal with the repercussions of that, but then I was able to learn from the experience over the, over the next year. And it really helped me kind of bring my game to the next level, you know, as a leader. How can I best support you? Um, I would say follow me on social media because I try to keep everything up to date and like share. I share all the things. So I'll never <laughs> let, let, you out, let you out of that. That's a come to underdrown on Friday. Um, <laughs> for virtual stage reading. Um, yeah, follow Pop Magic Productions, follow the Olivia Lily on Instagram. Um, you can follow me on Facebook, but Instagram is like more, I'd say where I'm going, I'm doing the thing, you know, also like always interested in hearing about gigs. If people have paid gigs that they want somebody to to do that are like directing or producing related, always interested Mm -hmm. in hearing, can't guarantee I'll be available, but super down. Um, yeah, I would say those are the ways that I can be supported. Donating a prop, donating a prop. Oh, yeah. I'm into that. Getting prop prop theater merch through the third. We'll make sure to tag that or to link that in the in the bio for the podcast. Um, Olivia, do you want to take a few minutes and, and plug anything? Oh man. Last plug. <laughs> um, come to Prop Theater and Perceptions Theater Company present Underdrown this Friday, the 26th at 7 p.m. Central. Um, you can RSVP right at Prop Theater's website, proptheater.org. Um, you will get a virtual Zoom link. It is a Zoom reading. And please stick around for the talk deck. Yes. Led by Perceptions. Um, and Underdrown is on um, Afro Surrealist Play part of an Afro-Surrealist trilogy called Night Queen. Olivia, thank you so much. It's really been a joy to have you on our podcast today. And I so look forward to seeing all of the wonderful things that you bring to Chicago. Thank you, Joanna. Yeah, this is lovely. This is a delight. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Seven City Podcast with your hosts, Joanna Moffat and Emily Cox, produced by Elijah Lee. Join us next month as we interview Emily Cox's mother. <laughs>